This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. She was, she, you know, she's still a, a human being and a child, 17 years old. I mean, everybody at 17, you're, you're trying to find yourself. You know, you're find, trying to figure out where you fit in the world, what you want to be when you grow up. And, you know, finding happiness and enjoying, you know, these years. And there just seems to be some just... I don't know, just no one cares. It felt like no one cared. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Will Johnson. I'm here with Spencer Brudig and Jessica Knoll. We are here every week covering a new case, a new story. And Jessica, this week we're covering a case uh, in northern Ohio, and there's something a a little bit different about this one, right? Right, Will. So unlike so many of the other cold cases that we've covered on True Crime Chronicles, this one has something that's a little bit different um, and that others seem to kind of struggle to have, especially in a case this old. We're talking 30 years old. Um, and that is hope. Also, this case has some interesting technological achievements that the DNA that has been part of this cold case is currently being tested by the same group that was able to break the Golden State Killers case wide open. All right, Jessica, let's get into the story. Our family holidays were amazing. Um, We always had it at my mother's house. And I had um, my aunt and my uncle, and they had children. So there was a ton of us. There were seven of us. And we had the big Christmas, and all the presents were there, and Santa Claus bought presents. So the whole living room was filled with presents and uncles and, you know, the dads playing cards in the living room, the ladies in the kitchen smoking their cigarettes, talking about things, and tons of food everywhere because we were Polish. So just tons and tons of food to feed an army. And all the aunts just, it was just, it was the best. It's December 19th, 1987, and as Cleveland gears up for the holidays, a mother and daughter go Christmas shopping, not knowing that their daughter and little sister would never come home that night or ever again. The next morning on December 20th, 17-year-old Barbara Ann Blatnick is found naked, sexually assaulted, and brutally beaten, strangled, and stabbed dumped on a country road in Cuyahoga Falls, about 30 miles from where she was last seen knocking on her boyfriend's doorstep. But before we tell you about her last night alive, let me tell you about the teenager, better known as Barbie. I think Barbara Blatnick was the typical teenager of the 80s. She's an 80s kind of kid. Blonde hair with the typical cut that you see in the 80s with the feathered back look. She liked to have be around friends. She loved rock and roll music. She wore a black leather jacket. She wore the Levi jeans. She uh, was a fun-loving girl. She was, you know, she was an American girl, as the song goes. That's Phil Trexler, an investigative executive producer at Three News in Cleveland. He's been covering her case for years. He tells us about the area she grew up in and what the city was like in the 80s. She grew up in in a suburban Cleveland neighborhood, um, mostly middle class. Both of her parents worked. Barbara had an older sister, two years older, Donna. And um, while they were close as as children, as their teenage years came about, they kind of of went in separate uh, areas with friends. Um, Donna was more of the preppy kind of girl. Uh, At the time that Barbara was killed, Donna was preparing for her wedding. She was marrying the boy next door, and uh, Barb was supposed to be her maid of honor. And to this day, you know, um, Donna remains her greatest advocate. She's, she's gone around, and she's trying to keep Barb's 
uh, legacy alive in the hopes that this case will be solved. In one of her last photos, the feathered back blonde wearing a black shirt stares back with emerald green eyes and heavy black eyeliner, three pairs of large dangly silver earrings, two silver chain necklaces, and a stark, serious expression on her face. It's a photo she loved, her sister Donna Zaneth remembers. She was beautiful. She had beautiful um, porcelain skin, these beautiful emerald green eyes, and they were really deep set. Donna was a senior in high school when her sister, a junior, was killed. When we were little, we were very close. We played with all the, you know, we walked to school together to the bus stop, and um, we, you know, we walked home together. We would walk to the grocery store together because where we lived, you could walk to the boulevard, Garfield Boulevard, and we could go get our candy and then come home, and it was like an easy walk, and... We hung out together all the time when we were younger. Where we lived, there was a lot of woods, so we like we always were outside, and we were always like in the woods. And we had a, a so one of the boys put up a swing, so we used to swing off the trees past cliffs, and we just go hiking all the time. And so we would play football in the neighborhoods, tag. So most of the time, we were outside playing all the time. Our, our parents didn't let us stay in and watch TV when we were little. If the weather was nice; we were outside playing. We used to share a teeny weeny little room. So, um, you know, we used to, when we get mad at each other, one of us would move into the basement because we had a huge basement. So she was living in the basement at the time and turned it into her little bedroom in it. So that's where she lived. And, it had, you know, she had her bedroom set on the TV and um, all her different art pieces that she made from school. She made huge, like, um, poster-sized sketches of different things. Like, she liked Garfield the cat. But by high school, the sisters had drifted apart, hung with different crowds. She liked to hang out with her friends. She liked to party. She um, loved music. She loved ACDC, Led Zeppelin, like the more heavier metal kind of bands. And she loved art, so she did do a lot of drawing and sketching. And um, she was getting into ceramics making when she was in school. So she did a lot of that, but she liked to just hang out with her friends. You know, everybody hung out in the basement of somebody's house and watched TV and probably smoked cigarettes and drank and that kind of thing. While Barbie was still finding her way, Donna says she was also a budding artist with a lot of talent. Well, she was kind of lost, but when she started going to... um, Area View Catholic, she got more focused. That's when she really found the art. She was, she was taking a lot of art classes, and so she found that, you know, she was really good at it. And my mother was an artist. She was a graphic artist. So I think Barbie kind of wanted to go in some way like that. The now 50-year-old, who at the time was planning her wedding and ready to have her little sister stand next to her as a maid of honor, remembers the last words she and Barbie ever spoke to each other. The day she, she disappeared, we were all home, the four of us, and she um, was on the phone and she came in the kitchen. She said she was going out with her friends and they were going to be picking her up. So I kissed her and I just said, you know, be careful and I love you and I'll see you tomorrow. And she said, I'll be fine. And she kissed me and then she left and that was the last time I saw her. So she didn't come home that night, which was not unusual because back then if you were at somebody's house and you were hanging out, you just slept there. So my mother and I woke up the next day. And um, we started to do Christmas shopping, so I think we went to, like, BJ's, the wholesale club. Mm-hmm. And so we were buying Christmas presents, and I know I, we picked her out, like, a new blow dryer and different things like that. My mom was acting all weird that day, and, you know, as soon as we were coming home, my mom's like, she, she was like, there's something wrong, something doesn't feel right. And back then, you didn't have cell phones. So when we pulled in the driveway, there were three police cars, and my dad's truck wasn't there, and she knew something was wrong. So when we walked in the house, there were detectives and policemen. And my dad was just standing there, and he was like white as a ghost, just shaking. So um, we were gone, and when they, the police came and the detectives and took my dad to Cuyahoga Falls to ID my sister's body alone. So he had to do that all by himself. So all that whole because you know he couldn't get a hold of us, which is kind of sad now if you think about it. He had to do it all by himself. So he had to go and ID the body, and um, 
He couldn't drive home, so they brought him back home. Phil Trexler takes us back to Monday, December 19th. 1987. Barbara's final day was close to what how she's lived her her teenage time. She was with friends. They were went to a party on the west side of Cleveland. They hung out for a little bit. Later on, they traveled across the east side and they went to a bar that served underage uh, drinkers. And then the crowd was it was late at night, early morning, and the her friends wanted to go home, but Barb wanted to go to visit her boyfriend's house on the city's east side, and the friends drove her there, dropped her off, and went back home, leaving Barb alone, knocking on the door. The boyfriend has told authorities repeatedly that he never saw Barb that night, that if she knocked on the door, he didn't hear her. Um, he has an alibi for the, for the night of the homicide, and he insists that he never saw her or harmed her in any way. Investigators have a strong suspicion that multiple assailants are involved in Barbie's attack, especially since she was considered a fighter, and it would have taken more than one person to take her down. The theory is, is that somehow, someway, um, Barb met with a violent death. For some whatever reason, whoever did it, they they don't know. I, it feels as though they're no closer today to solving this murder than they were back in 1987. Um, she was violently raped. She was violently assaulted. It's clear from her wounds that she fought ferociously because that's the type of girl that Barb was. She was a fighter. She wouldn't go quietly. Um, there was a struggle. She had... You know, bruises and marks and, you know, her killer's DNA under her fingernails. It was a vicious fight. Uh, but she eventually succumbed to, to this man and died a, a very violent death. She was found nearly 30 miles from where her friends dropped her off at her boyfriend's house. But Phil believes the killer wanted her body to be found. While retracing Barb's last steps... They go to the home of her boyfriend. That's where she was last known to be alive. And that is 30 miles or so away from where her body was ultimately found. What law enforcement believes uh, happened is that she was killed somewhere near Cleveland within the city limits. And with her, she was then, her body was then taken south towards Zachron, where on a you know, deserted you know, country back road, her body was just left there for someone to find. It wasn't, there was no attempt to conceal the body. This, whoever put the body there, their intent was for her remains to be found. There was no attempt by the killer to conceal her body. It was there either to shock folks or to be sure that she was found and that there would be no long missing person investigation. That was a conscious decision, obviously, by the killer to make sure that her body was found, and certainly it was. One of the people they were first initially looking at was her boyfriend, Jerry Stead, and that's where she was last seen. So obviously, Jerry is who they want to talk to. Ironically, Jerry uh, has a connection somehow in his family to the Cleveland Police Department. And it was his father, who has these ties to Cleveland Police somehow, who told them and supported uh, Jerry's um, alibi that he was at home the entire night and had never left. That uh, alibi was... We have to assume, because we don't know, because the police don't release that information, but we assume that Jerry was certainly examined closely and his alibi was, was confirmed because he was quickly dismissed as a suspect. 
Barb hang, hung out with some some rough characters. Uh, the family will tell you that. Uh, she hung out with some guys who owned a uh, a bike and motorcycle shop over on the uh, east lower east side of Cleveland. It's a tough neighborhood. Um, she hung out with some tough guys. I mean, these were you know the quote unquote biker dudes, and they were they were tough. They had they had criminal records. Nothing, of course, in the line of murder, but there was you know sprinkled in there was some drug use and some assaults. And that's where she was that night at the bike shop. She wanted to visit them, and she saw her friends. You know, their rap sheet included did include some attempted murder, and but it's unclear. You know, if, how much Barbie knew. I mean, she was a, she was a street smart kid, but back then you can't go on the internet and look up somebody's criminal record. So, how much Barb knew about the guys that she was hanging out with? It's really tough to say. She hung out with uh, older guys who drank, who did drugs, who would whoop it up for a good time. Law enforcement doesn't know what her next move was, where she went, who she was in contact with. That's what the family struggles with so much, is that there's so much in this case, so many questions that have never been answered since 1987. You know, what happened after she left Jerry's house? Information on the case hasn't been easy to obtain, as Phil has found. Law enforcement to this day has refused to release so much information, not only to the media, but to the Blatnick family. There's so many questions that the family has that have not been answered. The ramifications of multiple attackers, you know, could lead to several conclusions. You know, was she tortured? Um, Was she raped repeatedly by other suspects? Are we going to find DNA of multiple men, multiple offenders. That's, you know, there's so much that we don't know. But without clothes or much evidence, the investigation hinges on something Barbie was able to get from her killer or killers. So let's take ourselves to the crime scene here. Normally what you'd find is clothing or you'd find some items that you could swab for DNA. Even DNA was, was lightly thought of back in 1987. It was just an emerging forensic science then. It wasn't what it is today. So the fact of the matter is there was no clothing. There were no items. There was no murder weapon left behind. You had a body and a ring. That's it. So they had to take a closer examination. Well, what they've always done for decades is scrape the fingernails. And under nine of her ten fingers... They found DNA samples, skin, as if she had fought and scratched her assailant. It was it actually felt like almost, if you think about it, that Barb was collecting the evidence as she's being killed, too. She's scraping and scratching and clawing her attacker. There was very little evidence aside from the DNA under her fingernails. That DNA would eventually become tested, and it was never connected to any known suspect in the police database. Donna says the silence among the community has kept her sister's case cold. I think people know, and they just haven't said anything. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that know what happened and are not talking. I don't think anybody was properly investigated. If somebody said they had an alibi, they said, okay, and just let it go at that. The trail turned cold. No suspects, no leads, and it remains that way for more than 30 years. In cold cases, there's usually not a lot of hope in closing the case file and putting someone behind bars. But in Barbie's case, there's a new light shining on it. And with that, some newfound optimism. Let's go back. 1987, this is when this was heinous murder was committed. For years, year after year after year, the, the investigations sat dormant. 
it felt to the family as though nothing was being done. They'd get periodic updates from the detectives, but those updates amounted to nothing more than reassurances that, yeah, we're still working on it. Now there is some hope for the family. There is some hope that the investigation will move forward. A new nonprofit group has been formed in Cleveland. It's called the Porchlight Project. It's the brainchild of James Renner, a noted crime author in Cleveland. Um, He's done several books. Um, He's been an investigative reporter and journalist and writer for just 20 years in this area. This idea of the Porchlight was to become a nonprofit, collect money in order to pay for the very expensive DNA testing that can be done in a way that will perhaps, hopefully, help the Blatnick family know and learn who in fact killed Barb. Since the Cleveland-based nonprofit, the Porchlight Project, has gotten involved, more pieces of the puzzle seem to have been illuminated. The story goes now that she arrived at a friend's house named Phil Null, and she took a taxi to his house. She was on the west side somewhere, and she took a taxi to his house, and that's how that was the handwriting on her hand, was because, you know, you had to write a number down, then make a pay phone call. So she was there for a while, and then from that, from his house... She went to the motor to the um, bike shop on Turney Road to go to the party. She was at the party for a while with her friends, and then her and her two girlfriends that she was with that night left the party and went to a bar. They stayed there for a while and then decided to go home, and that's when she told them to drop her off at Jerry's house. And the girls did not want to drop him off at Jerry's, but knowing my sister, she was very animate about it, and they probably didn't have much choice in the matter. She was a very strong-willed person, and she did what she wanted when she wanted. Barbie's case is the first that the Porchlight Project is assisting on, and their mission is, when a person goes missing, sometimes the only thing we can do to show support is turn on our porch light until they come home. Now, the evidence found underneath Barbie's fingernails is in the hands of the forensic specialists who were instrumental in breaking the Golden State Killer case wide open last year through genealogical DNA. Donna is, if anything, right now, Donna's re-energized. Donna now, after 30 years, she finally has some hope. There's some movement happening here. You know, this this porch light just was formed this year. On the board, there's a victim advocate. There's some private investigators. There are journalists. There's an attorney There's about nine of us, including myself. I'm a member of the board, proudly. And we have looked at a handful of cases, and we made this our our first test case. Um, We have collected over $4,000 in donations, and this is going to um, be taken, and the DNA is already on its way to California. It's going to be tested by Colleen Fitzpatrick and her team at Identifinders International. Those are the folks that helped solve the the, uh, Golden State uh, murder case. And um, the family, you know, Donna especially, she's so optimistic because they know under those fingernails, and that's what's being tested out there in California. That's what's being tested. And now, instead of just focusing on the state database, which only has the DNA samples of convicted or arrested felons, now it's going to be broadened out for the genealogical study where family members uh, who have donated DNA, you know, to different companies, they're now going to be compared to that. And everybody is optimistic that, you know, Identifinders International can do for Barbara Blatnick's family what they did for so many other people in the past year and a half, two years. Phil Trexler believes that Barbie is finally getting the attention she deserves. And perhaps soon... 
So will her killer. I think Barbara knew her killer. I think that she met somebody that night. I think things, for whatever reason, turned violent. And I think it just snowballed. I, I think it goes to show you sometimes law enforcement and even the media, I have to say, sometimes neglects some victims. We, we, we move on and we forget. And I think for 25, almost 30, you know, 30 years, I think we all kind of like forgot Barbara. Um, the Internet has revived her. You know, there's so many Internet crime sleuths out there who are thirsty to contribute to unsolved homicides. I think finally Barbara's getting the, the respect that she deserves. Her, and I'm confident that, that this investigation is going to come to a head very, very soon. When Phil talks to Donna, the pain is still raw, but she keeps a reminder close to her heart every day. You can see the pain still in her eyes. Her tears well up as she talks about her sister, and then she'll use and she'll touch the necklace around her neck, and it's, and it's her sister's ring that she holds so close to her. Um, she now uses it as a necklace. It, it's, it's a reminder every day that you know, her, she lost her sister. She lost so much. I mean, her kids don't have an aunt. You know, she doesn't have a sister to call and, and gossip about family events. She doesn't have a best friend like that anymore. So, yeah, she's, she wears this ring as a daily reminder of her sister and, and, and the loss that she's endured. The family has renewed hope for finding out who killed Barbie. So everybody knows who killed her because he should not get away with it. And I, I do believe knowing who killed her will, will finally close the door. And even if he's dead or if he's alive, it really doesn't matter. Putting a face to the monster, because right now it's kind of like a faceless monster that killed her. And I think we need closure. Her friends, my, my family that's still left, my cousin, my father who's still alive, and my husband. My husband and I, um, we grew up next door to each other, so he knew Barbie her whole life, too. We all grew up together. So he was very close to her, too. So we all just need closure. And I don't think he should get away with it. I don't think that he deserves to get away with it. He need, everybody needs to know who this monster is. If you have any information about Barbara Blantick's case, call the Cuyahoga Falls Police Department Detective Bureau at 330-971-8334. Something that's striking to me is the fact that the father had to deal with this by himself. While his other daughter and his wife were out Christmas shopping, they were getting ready for her wedding. Uh, he was called, he had to go self-identify the body, and he had to relay that information on to the rest of the family. That's unimaginable considering how brutal this was. And Jessica, what's the timetable do we know for when we might hear more about the results of this genealogical test? Well, we actually don't have an exact date on that just yet. Um, some Sometimes these DNA tests can take months. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a waiting game at this point. But, you know, this family's waited for 30 years. So they're, uh, they're just waiting a little longer on this and, and see if it can um, give them some answers. All right. We will be back next week with a new case and a new story. And a big thank you to Phil Trexler and the team at WKYC in Cleveland. Jessica, what's the case we're looking at next week? Next week, we're going to be looking at a case where a young woman was lured to a pretend Halloween party. And as you can imagine, the outcome is not good. All right. We'll be back next week. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, 
Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major listening apps. You can find Vault Studios on Twitter, Instagram, and check out our Facebook group, Gone Cold, where we discuss this and other cases.